Hello, welcome everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Cashew Podcast channel. My name is Stacy Geringer and I am the Outreach Director at the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare. We are excited to share our latest podcast series with you. The series is titled Early Development and Child Welfare and features interviews with a variety of professionals in the fields of early childhood and child welfare. Listeners will enjoy content related to attachment, culture, screening, brain development, infant mental health, and more. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel for future episodes. Thank you for listening and take care. Good afternoon. Uh, My name is Tanika Eves, and um, I am from um, Fairfield University in Connecticut and also the Connecticut Association for Infant Mental Health. And um, I am so happy and excited to be here with um, Andrea Pennick, who is um, a central um, endorsement central services coordinator for the Alliance for the Association of Infant Mental Health out in Michigan, and with Cassandra Thomas, who is a medical social worker with St. Joe Mercy Oakland Hospital um, in Pontiac, Michigan. And we're going to be talking today about... um, cultural perspectives in child welfare practice, um, and, and really doing some thinking together about how we bring um, who we are into our work in terms of our culture identity and also our biases. Um, we're also gonna reflect on um, how, how, how does our identity and our belief systems sort of impact the relationships we develop with um, often the vulnerable children and families that we work with. and. Um, what you know thinking about over the past year with everything that has taken place in our society in terms of uh, racial and social justice what is sort of foremost in child welfare practice and and perhaps policy um you know in this moment so i guess i'll start with a a, a just a broad question um so you are both have uh well experienced and well versed in infant mental health and you have mental health skills that um, support working with babies and young children, as well as their families, um, in order to keep children safe, in order to keep their development on track. Um, And you often do this through a social work lens. So what does that look like um, in your current role? How how do you sort of marry the social work with the infant mental health in, in your practice? Yeah, I am. Um, so I'm currently working for the Alliance for the Advancement of Infant Mental Health, and we're a national organization that um, has a credential um, that many states are using. And my role is supporting the infant mental health associations in different states and then helping people, infant mental health professionals, um, go through the endorsement process and build their professional development. So in my role, being a social worker hugely impacts it in I mean, I'm very social justice oriented. That's why I got into the field. Um, And I think the biggest piece I pulled from is understanding the systems that impact our society and the individuals in our society. And so I'm doing a little bit more macro work than I used to, where I'm I'm really looking at the, the organizations that are impacting our professionals that are then impacting the families that we're working with. Um, And my infant mental health lens is used all the time in that, I mean, one of the biggest pieces that infant mental health is so relationship-based and in understanding systems, you have to understand the people in the systems. You have to develop relationships in that way. And I've been most successful when I 
bring my relationship lens to my understanding of that work so that I know that the parallel process of me working with them is going to pass down to them working with staff. It's going to pass down to staff working with families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. So, I mean, it, it almost sounds like the way you're describing it, that 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 social work and infant mental health are, and, and practice, um, and in theory, it almost fits intuitively that, that we have this ecosystem and that relationships exist within and drive the ecosystem. And I love how you mentioned the parallel process um, of sort of how does, how does each system behave or, or correspond in relationship to one another. Yeah, um, absolutely. And understanding that barriers and stressors that impact an infant is going to be addressed through relationship and same way barriers and stressors that are going to impact an organization or a system or a policy is going to be addressed through the relationships that are interacting with that and those and the other systems that are interacting with that system and to make change you have to look at it from that lens right cassandra we'd love to hear from you how do you merge those two viewpoints of infant mental health and social work together in your role? And so I would say for me, um, the merger is really just a part of the process um, in order to ensure that um, children will be safe. And when you're working with families and you're working with individuals, um, that that you have that skill set and that it's pretty much the basis of um, the work that you're doing. Um, I know that we look at it as a merger um, in terms of how we're processing things, but I think that it really has to be a just a part of that process. Um, although I'm doing some work in infant mental health, lots of history and background in child welfare, it's really just a part of um, you know what we're doing and keeping that at the forefront of um, the work that we're doing and, and a primary focus when we're engaging with, with families and, and individuals that we're working with. So I love that you said it's 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 sort of part and parcel. Um, I have a funny little 10 second story to tell. When when I was in my master's in social work program, I there was a infant child specialist certificate program um, in the educational psychology department at the, the university I attended. And that program was set up so that graduate students could sort of be in speech therapy or social work or psychology and then specialize in early childhood. And I will never forget going to my dean for, for permission to, to, you know, to do this. And she asked, well, what do, what do babies have to do with social work? <laughs> um, and so it makes me sort of think about what, what both Andrea and Cassandra you're saying about um, infants live in systems. And if bad things are happening to grown-ups, that's probably affecting the babies. Absolutely. So you you know it's almost like it, it's hard to think to, to not think about early Absolutely. life experience in a social work context. Mm -hmm. It's the foundation so, and the basis for um, for their being. It, it really is the start and the foundation and and how healthy those relationships are and um, how supported. Um, that development is really has a major, it has everything to do with social work and how the, those um, infants will have a, you know, healthy upbringing and development. Right. So now what led you both to um, pursue this kind of work and to combine these two areas of expertise? What inspired you? I, I'm just a social worker for life. It's like aligns with me to my core. 
Um, and I found infant mental health really early in my career and I think sunk into it for a couple of reasons. You know, everything we just talked about that the baby is supported by systems around it. Um, at the bare minimum, infant mental health is dyadic work. And the impact of that I've found to be amazing and like effective. And it's so important for me to be effective in my work. There's no individual therapy in infant mental health, but in a lot of other systems, there is the expectation that change comes from within or is totally individually based. And, and selfishly, I really like to work in an environment where it's understood that it's dyadic work at the minimum. It's understood that I'm not going to have to face an individual or a family or an infant and expect them to change on their own. I have multiple dyads and multiple systems that we can all work together. It feels way more like teamwork and way more um, centered around the family, which was really important for me in starting my career. And then the other piece that I really leaned on hard early on was that the parent is the expert in infant mental health. Us, like, you know, right out of grad school, I've I heard people say, like, fake it till you make it, like, get in there. And I, I, like, felt so uncomfortable with that. And so leaning on instead the fact that I am a guest in this home and I'm a learner mm. still, and I don't want to deny that I'm learning and I want to look to the experts around me and then infant mental health, I mean, just aligns perfectly. Like I, I never want to stop seeing the parent as expert. Um, I transitioned really quickly into understand like a reverse hierarchy sort of thing where my sole purpose is to serve this family. And so supporting from beneath and supporting from an understanding that they've given me is how I've been able to do that effectively. And I've never had to fake it. I've never had to like pretend to be somebody I'm not or pretend to know things that I don't know. We can learn together, we can grow together and I can support this dyad through what already exists, already has been existing for them for their whole life. And I'm newly learning it. Wow. You just, you said that with such sort of the, the this humility and authenticity of entering a relationship. Yeah. Yes. With, um, with families and, and recognizing, right, that, that we're not experts going in to tell people what to do. Um, perhaps our role is more facilitative and, and, and that the, the parent or the family really holds um, the, the, the information and, and the solutions. Um, I also think it's really important what you pointed out about this, this idea of this is dyadic work. It's never, we're never really talking about a one-on-one -on -one individual um, alliance. And that oftentimes, in my experience in infant mental health work, it isn't just the child and parent, but it's perhaps if there's a family that where, where it could be the baby, mom, grandma, or mom, dad, baby, you know, extended family. And so really the family becomes a unit of, of, of care in that way. Um, Cassandra, what are your thoughts? And so I would say, I mean, she said it so very, very well, very, very well said. And I definitely agree um, with a lot of what she says. But in working in this field, you begin to quickly, um, I think, understand and appreciate the vulnerability of um, the young population that you're working with. And for me, it's that um, they just deserve that chance at success. And when we can support the families and we can support um, the communities and enhance those um, 
all the parts that make up the foundation for um, this particular infant as they begin to grow and learn things, then we can definitely um, impart on them something that's going to be beneficial for them as they continue to grow. I love how, and echo what she says about um, the parents and individuals in the lives being the expert. I too had to learn that early in my career. Um, you spend a lot of time learning and um, and thinking of yourself as the specialist or the expert in these fields. Um, but you quickly learn as you're doing this nature of the work that there's so much for you to learn from the families that you're serving and the individuals that you're working with and that they are the experts in their home. They have learned to manage um, and maneuver um, and, and really get things done and make things happen in their home. And my role is often, I try to look at, I'm not coming in to change that, but maybe enhance what's already there. Um, helping to learn from them about them so that I can um, provide resources and, and knowledge and suggestions that they that can enhance and grow their families. So um, it I've very similar to what she said, I've always been, a social worker at heart. I've always loved the idea of assisting, mentoring, and coaching individuals um, because it, in fact, helps mentor, coach, <laughs> and, and help myself. Um, and that when you love that idea of what you're trying to do, it becomes very easy to um, continue in this field and do this challenging work. I just love what you said about that, that it, this isn't just about the family's growth and development, but your own, that this um, mm -hmm. this idea that I'm not sure we explore or talk about enough that we learn from our families. Our, our families Absolutely. impact us, right, and, and have meaning for us too as, as mm -hmm. professionals but as people. Um, mm -hmm. And that's that's so important. And our culture at large, like American culture, is is the opposite of that. Like we go to school to be experts, and like we value letters after our names, and like we have to present ourselves as competent, mm -hmm. or else somebody will like chew us up for not knowing. And so, it's it's there's that social push, and and drive to enter the field as a young professional as somebody who knows things, who's learned things and can offer it, but changing that cultural norm and like sinking into that, which infant mental health, like if you're in an infant mental community, ideally it, it nurtures that opposite idea that you don't have to come with that sort of energy. You don't have to bring that, that standard and, it, and it's not really valuable in that space. Definitely not valuable. It, it, when a family is able to um, see themselves as a part of the solution and um, having some value and bringing some worth to the table about what's going to work for themselves and their family, um, it just becomes, I've just seen better outcomes. I've mm -hmm. seen it be um, more sustainable. I've seen it be, um, they're excited. And then now they've become the catalyst to a part of that mm -hmm. change. And now they're embarking that on other family members, others in the community because they now have been empowered to say, you know what, I have something to offer. I have some, some, um, and I've obviously learned some things. And so um, that's always a, a good thing when you can see that um, in, in families that you're working with. Cassandra, you just, you basically um, illustrated for us the, the, the ethical value and social work of self-determination and, and, and what that looks like, that, that, that we're not saving people. Um, <laughs> which is, is, which is so important. Yeah. 
And I think that's where we talk that self-assessment that we kind of talked about a little bit earlier or that readjustment Mm -hmm. um, that need to remind um, myself as a professional. I've had to remind myself of that Um, when when that is your focus to save and to correct Mm -hmm. um, you you really are off task and you don't get the, the outcomes that you would hope for for those individuals. So I am not without flaw in that area and have had to um, remind and reassess myself as well. I think in my supervisor experience too, I mean, and I, I, Andrea, to your point, you're right. So much of the paradigm that we are all educated and trained in, whatever field we're in, is all about knowing and doing. And then you come into infant mental health and, and what we hear if we want to be more thoughtful, reflective practitioners is we have to learn to tolerate not knowing sometimes. And that sometimes we can't do, we have to be, or we have to listen and we have to watch. And I've seen people sort of have to sit on their hands, you know, <laughs> to, to, to say, I feel like I need to do something here, but, um, but, but is that really going to meet the need of the family or is it my need? And, 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 and what will it serve, it, you know, and, that, and mm-hmm. that, that, that decision to act versus observe or versus listening or so. It, Whose it's need a, are we meeting? Right. It's a constant dance, I think. Yeah. So I'm going to shift the focus a teeny bit and, and, and really think more about what, is, what does culture mean with regards to, to the issues that we've been talking about? Um, and what does it mean to take on a cultural perspective in our practice? And, and why does it matter? And, and what does who we are, I call it social location, but in terms of, of our race, ethnicity, background, religion, you know, where we are in the social totem pole, um, is that important in, in our work? And, and if so, why? So I don't know who wants to go first, but <laughs> I can. I have a story, though, so I hope we have time. But so I think about this a lot. And I recently was at a training and like a unbiasing training, which is like my least favorite type of trainings, but important. Um, and it was a leadership group. And uh, towards the end of it, people could kind of come to this like understanding that like, gosh, a really big barrier for them was that they could not reconcile that like their ancestors or their lineage or like the people before them and their family were racist or were perpetuating systems of oppression or were very closely in hand with some of the atrocities that we culturally now see as like, you know, atrocities. And I just left thinking so much about how that idea in your mind that you're you're immune to bias or that that the people before you were were so good were so to the standards of where we're at now even like you like the belief of superiority in who you are and that and that you are different is so ingrained in some cultures and in some in some ways that we interact in the world and i think about that that lens coming into a home of like and and you and it plays out all the time and and it and it aligns with that same idea that you know we strive to to show ourselves off and to like show that we're experts and so you go into the home with this understanding that like I know I know better I do better I'd be a better parent 
And I trust in that because not just me, the people before me were, my mother was, my grandmother was this amazing person. And so I think about that a lot in how culture plays out in the families that we work with. And just if the struggle is on that level, if the inability to reconcile that bias is normal, that the people of our past would never be at the state, we've made progress in something, so they would never have behaved in a way that we would find socially acceptable across the board now. And that even in these moments now that we are perpetuating ourselves systems of oppression every single day in many different ways mm -hmm. and being able to, to really find comfort in the fact that and you're not superior, you're not better than and it takes a, a lot of work and a lot of understanding. And there's many variables that fall into that cultural standard. But and, and then with the history of racial division. So so then you also have a history of of being told that you're also better than because you're white or you're also better than because, you know, you were born in America. And so it, it plays out in the home. It, it has to. It is. We know it is. Mm -hmm. You, that you, that's a lot to unpack. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. No. I mean. Yes. And I. You know. And I. This. I think too. When we're discussing bias, you know, then objectivity comes into it. And and I've heard many people say, "Well, I have no biases. I have to be completely objective as a social worker or as a practitioner because." You know, that's what we're told. But, um, and I don't know, so there's this, um, I don't know if you guys are on into YouTube, there's like the, the divided states of the United, or the divided states of America. And it's this really funny journalist sort of, I think she should moonlight as a comedian, but she interviews a psychologist and they're talking about implicit bias. And this woman basically says, if you have a brain, you have bias. <laughs> so now that we've gotten that out of the way, <laughs> you know, let, let's, 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 it's like, it's okay. You have bias and it's called being human. And so let's think about how we can um, stay in touch with that and stay in conversation with that and, 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 and consider alternative perspectives. So like this permission almost, um, yeah. And I was just gonna say, I think that's what's important. I think that acknowledging that it's, it's okay. It's not wrong that you have biases. It, it's, it's a part of who you are. It's a part of your being, but it's what you do with that and how you work to um, keep them in check and making sure that you're, um, you know, being intentional in your approach to, to not em employ them or impact them um, on those that you're working with or those that you're in relationship with or, or whatever is going on. And it's such an important, for me, important part of the work um, that we do or specifically the work that I do um, when you're working specifically in, um, in the lower social economical class, like you have to be able and willing to acknowledge any bias that you have and then work to remove them and, and, and empower and employ individuals. I just think that families are going to respect you more. They're going to engage with you more. And that's where you really, um, are able to, to do that work. I work in the child welfare field and I've been in this field for 22 years and we've been talking about um, the dispropor disproportionality of um, people of color in, in the system, mm -hmm. but we've been talking about it for 22 years. Mm -hmm. And I just said to someone the other day that um, we've been talking about this for a while. It, it rolls around every so often and we're, we're talking about it. 
but what are we going to do in in our an intentional approach to um, do something about that? To acknowledge it is one thing. And I think that is great because you can't do anything until you acknowledge it. But at some point, we have to shift that from acknowledgement to application. We have to be doing something um, right. effective, you know, training awareness to know why is it? The, the, the numbers are staggering when you really look at that. Um, well, Andrea, you, I mean, you, something you said that was particularly, um, it struck me what was this idea, and this is sort of going back to who am I on the social totem pole and 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 how do how do I bring that into the space of like so parenting who who gets to decide what makes a good parent or what makes a good mm-hmm. intact family and, and you said something about this idea of well if my mom was great and my grandmother's great and this is how they did it then this must be how it is and you know right. I think too with babies I don't know any people who don't have strong opinions about <laughs> what's best for babies you know how, how they should be handled right or not handled um and so i think that's also you people you have very strong opinions and feelings about that often grounded in our own experiences and, and how we were parented and, and and how much culture race economic status plays a, a, a role in that um yeah cassandra you had me thinking when you were talking about just the value of digging into your own bias and the value of the impact on the family, just thinking about like culturally to have a shift where there's no expect you don't arrive your best self and there is so much mm-hmm. more benefit in experiencing the journey and experiencing the change. And I think oftentimes we want to be done. We want to be done with DEI work. We want to have like finished racism. We want to have finished, you know, abuse and neglect. We want it to be gone. And we'll never, like with change and growth in society, we will, we will never not be changing. We are always going to be adapting and learning and growing. And and so on. somehow sh- a, a shift in values where we can really hold that standard up of like it, I see no value in you arriving thinking that you're an expert. I see a lot of value in you arriving open for change and growth. And, and a lot of that is looking at bias. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's a great, that's actually a great segue into the next question, which has to do with sort of if either of you have had some personal experiences you'd like to share, where in one instance, perhaps there was alignment between the family's background, social location, and your own and then when where where maybe a situation where there was not and and what you learned from those experiences i i can start with with sharing one in particular uh, the uh, recollection that i have of when it was not um that when that misalignment was present so i'm serving as a at this time i was working in the capacity of a um foster home licensing uh, Specialist, so I was assessing homes throughout the um, Tri County area in Michigan that had an interest in becoming licensed foster parents to care for children. We talk about the disproportionality of children in care, and um, unfortunately, um, children of color find themselves more frequently in um, our foster care or child welfare systems. And so, I'm assessing um, foster homes throughout the var- various communities, and consistently, what I was hearing was that um, the families were willing to accept all type of children, any um, male or female, but the exception came when it came to race. 
um, and they would indicate that they would take any child in their home except um, maybe children of color. Not maybe, except children of color. And um, I can recall as a, um, I would say probably young person in my career and in my professional career, that just being very difficult for me to hear. It was striking me in a manner in which um, I, I was probably making lots of um, biases, <laughs> being biased about some things, thinking about things in a very negative way. And really, I'll be honest, I was just struggling with understanding why, how, why would that be the case? How could you accept any child into your home with the exception of um, children of color? But once I began to reshift and reassess put whatever thoughts and feelings and I'll be honest, even just personal hurt because it they we're talking about individuals that look like me. When I was able to put that to a to the side and really have some quality conversations with other professionals, um, participating in some trainings, I was able to enhance my understanding of maybe um even if the family didn't know why they were making these decisions um, potentially what that meant for um, children of color that were not necessarily being placed there. That maybe, um, although I was looking at it negatively, the, the families were doing some self-assessment of their own to determine what not just their um, household was like, but maybe even their community and whether that would be welcoming and what kind of impact that would have on children that were already experiencing trauma if they came into a, a community or a neighborhood where um, they maybe weren't um, seen as a value or supported. Um, and so after having these experiences and these discussions, I was able to shift my own thinking and not necessarily seeing it from a negative point of view, but being more um, complimentary of individuals that were able to self-assess and acknowledge that, but really even having some discussion. Am I here to say that everybody really thought of it that deeply? That I can't say and I don't know. But I think as being a part of a catalyst for change, I being able to assess it myself in that manner and then taking that experience and making it a part of my training um, and engagement with other individuals, my peers, um, other individuals that I later supervise. And I think that that's a part of where we um, begin to be comfortable having some of those conversations about culture, race, and what impact it's having on our daily lives. That was, I mean, the very basic conversation that was just so profound for me as a professional. And I think it set the foundation for my um, willingness to, to be always open to having those conversations and trying to, to self-assess and learn some things and seeing what I can gather um, from that, how I could potentially not jump in to help, but enhance um, um, those situations. So I, I was very, um, this obviously, like I said, was a situation where it wasn't aligned. Um, but I felt that the conclusion of that, I, it, I found myself in a much better situation and was able to use my experience and um, that to mentor and coach and work with some others. So it sounds like in that situation, what you did was quite extraordinary because you were able to sort of take on or try on these alternative perspectives, even mm -hmm. though they were probably hurtful and upsetting and disturbing to you, which, so I told, so I, I, yes, on the one hand, so it's probably better that a child of color is not in a home where someone specifically says, mm -hmm. I don't want, but I'm just, what you said, so you said any other child, but a child of color, well, what does that really mean? <laughs> and mm -hmm. that's not unique to Michigan. I, that, that is pervasive throughout this country, throughout this system in child welfare. So then mm -hmm. it, leads to, so it leads to questions of 
So, so these are individual families saying this, but individuals make up institutions and societies. Exactly. And so, exactly. right, what, is, what, are the, um, what are the ramifications? Um, mm-hmm. And then, and then if, ch- if children of color are disproportionately represented, represented, and then they are more likely to have to, to, to be unwanted in placement. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating, but also really remarkable it's, it's, how you turned it around. <laughs> Because I had to, I mean, I think that this is where I'm training individuals and I'm discussing with individuals. If you're going to do this type of work, you're going to be faced with um, a constant reminder of um, issues surrounding um, diversity and culture and race and disproportionality. And it, it definitely wasn't um, because I've gotten some feedback from some individuals. Well, this is just a, um excuse that you try to put on it so that you, it doesn't feel bad. But I truly believe, I know that there are some individuals that I work with that they just had an awareness for their community. They had an awareness for, um, I always tell individuals that children are not, not just foster children, but children themselves are not just raised inside of your household. Right. You're going to family functions. You're going um, to the local store. You're outside engaging in your community. And um, that's a part of their upbringing. Mm-hmm. And if you're not um, comfortable, well, the fur- further challenge comes with that is what do you do about that when you're, um, your home, your environment, or your community isn't supportive of, of others, um, you know, but that's a, 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 a personal decision for individuals to make. But I, I can respect and appreciate the fact that if you're aware of that, that you don't want to cause future or for mm-hmm. additional trauma to um, individuals that are have already been, unfortunately, removed from their home and are experiencing that, you know, the trauma that they are. So it, it's, it's quite... Um, it can become quite heavy, um, but this is where I think we have to be armed with that education, that experience, that patience, mm-hmm. um, and that willingness to um, continue to readjust, shift, and, and learn. Yeah. Wow. Andrea, what, what are your thoughts? Gosh, I think with cultural alignment, I think one of the biggest things, and not to – I don't want this to sound trivial at all, is like uh, hope for families, like to – hope that they're going to be heard and seen. And it sounds so simple, but it's historically not happened. And I mean, it's the like ultimate gaslight to enter into someone's home offering help and to not be able to hear or see them. Like it makes me sick to think about it in that way. Just like the the basic it hasn't been done and, and doesn't get done. And so I think a lot of my work has been and with families, it's like a, a translator, and I'm not talking about language, but like people, when you ha- hold your own values and you're holding someone else up to that standard, you're missing all of their strengths. And so helping people understand like what is what does this family value and where are their strengths landing and what are we seeing that's going really well? And it impacts whether their kids are going to get removed. It impacts whether their kids are going to get returned. It impacts how the judge sees them if I'm able to speak at a court hearing. And it's for a family to be able to have that advocacy, I think strengthens them. Like you can feel like the empowerment, because especially if they historically haven't had it, you can see the comfort it changes our dynamics and our relationships when we can sink in and 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 when i when they know i see their strengths when they know i see 
that they want to take care of their kid because everybody wants to take care of their kid, then they can talk about the areas where they struggle. They can talk about the areas where they're vulnerable. But if that level of hearing and seeing hasn't been met, why would they expose that? Why would they welcome you in their home? So I think that's the biggest piece with alignment that has stood out to me. And then misalignment, the biggest learning piece for me was moving from Chicago to Michigan. I encountered trailer parks for the first time and was horrified. Like, never had experienced it. A lot of stereotypes in my head about what to expect. And even like a year into going to them consistently, still not for me. And I... I, th I think about the dread that I had in when I got a family that lived in a trailer home. And if I'm dreading it, why would like sit, why would they welcome me into their home? Like what, have, what are they feeling then? Mm -hmm. And it led oftentimes to like, if a family canceled, it was like a win for me because I was dysregulated because I was uncomfortable mm -hmm. because I didn't want to be there. And so then, like, I can just think of the infinite ways that that plays out in, did I, did I do a follow-up call? Did I do a drive-by? Did I do the same mm -hmm. efforts that I would with another family? Yeah. So mm -hmm. yeah. it took, I mean, I did a lot of work of looking inwards in myself and trying to figure out what, what I was bringing and what stereotypes I was bringing to, to these relationships that were impacting dyads and babies. And, and my, my sole purpose is to serve them. And, I, and here I was not able to do that. And I think a big piece of, I learned a lot of things. I learned a lot about my own body regulation and I learned how to, I learned like practical real skills and how to be aware of what's happening in my body. If my heart rate's up, if I'm fidgety, if I'm ready to go earlier and I learned skills on how to manage that. And then I also learned a lot about fear and what that does to people. And so thinking about if, your bias is racial and you're scared of black people, your instinct is to pull back. Your instinct is to avoid all of that physical reaction that you're having. So I think in my experience opened me up to really understanding cultural bias a little bit better because I you know, have anger towards it. I have frustrations mm -hmm. towards how it impacts our communities and, um, my experience of it definitely helped me think through what's happening for me is very likely what's happening for somebody else. And, and it's not just mm -hmm. trailer parks. It's not just black families. It's so many ways in which we become reactive in a situation because of what we're, what we're bringing to that space. Mm -hmm. and, and we all have our own triggers, right? Like we, there's like, there's all, there's something that it impacts everyone. And I mean, I, th I think especially in this line of work and if you're going into different communities and people's homes, there's always, you know, for me, it was cockroaches. <laughs> there's always some sort of like, oh my God, I can't, you know, and, and you're right. And how do you, how do you not let that get in the way of seeing the family? The work, the work that needs to be done. And, and ha right. And having the family be seen and known and valued. Um, and it's it it's it is very intentional, attentive, internal work that we have to do, and that's that's not easy. It's it's much more difficult, I think, than people realize. And it's not quick. 
and it's not done. Like I still, I'm, I'm not like no. gung ho about going to trailer parks now because I've done all this internal <laughs> work. Like I still have feelings. No. I just work really hard to navigate them and work really hard to understand how it may be impacting the relationship then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think that's that application that we were talking about. That it, it, you know, it's there. You've learned some things, and so now you're t- intentionally making the the and you know the plan to address those, so that you know I, I'm acknowledging it's there. I can't do anything about that, but I want to keep trying and keep working on improving that, so that I, it's my I'm not showing any bias, or I'm not um, just comfortable enough to to assist and work with that family. And the other part about that is that when we are <laughs> working and doing this kind of work and we're having that discomfort and thinking that it's not visible <laughs> and that individuals um, aren't aware mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. Well, f- well, families are always uh, more perceptive than we yes, assume, are. aren't they? Oh, oh, you know, <laughs> that that's I think that's more our blind spot <laughs> than the family, mm-hmm. you know, the families are, are they they know they know when you want to be there. They know you know what what which, what what your intentions are. I mean, I, th- I think on some level, um, and and so I we've talked a lot sort of about application. And so, if someone were listening to this, I mean, what are some things um, maybe more concretely that practitioners can do um, to successfully engage with families, um, with all families, but particularly with families from backgrounds that are different from their own. Um, and should they be acknowledging that? I mean, I hear a lot of what I've heard throughout my career is sort of that, that perhaps the background of the family is irrelevant (laughs) or that it's irrelevant that, um, we're, we're of different backgrounds because a good practitioner can work with anyone. Um, so, What's the counter argument to that? Irrelevant. Or is that true? I was going to say irrelevant to who? Because it's not about well, me. It's not about the work that I'm doing is for this family and supporting them. So if I'm dismissing it as irrelevant, I'm guessing I'm dismissing it and trying to say that it doesn't matter for me. I'm going to serve them well. But is that true for the parent? Is their experience different mm-hmm. in what they're perceiving is happening? And, and what's important in this relationship what i'm perceiving is happening or what they are maybe a mixture but i think you know there's a humility that comes with this work in challenging ourselves to not be perfect human beings to not be experts um and that's the space where growth comes is when we can really pause and sink into like the many, many variables that we're already juggling as especially home visiting or child welfare workers, like we are juggling so many dynamics mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. being able to slow down enough to be able to look at that extra dynamic, which is yourself and being able to be in an environment that supports you to do that, that recognizes that that has to happen in order for you to be successful and that not doing it just isn't acceptable either. Hmm. So it sounds like you're talking also too about supervision. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. That well, and and which, you know, we know is not for some. That's a luxury. You know, it, it we it is not. Um, 
as much as we in within infant mental health are, are, are promoting and talking a lot about supervision and what, what does it look like and what constitutes good supervision, um, that's not, I worked with many people in child welfare um, where supervision was a luxury. Absolutely. And no. supervisors are just as vulnerable to their own bias right. and to their mm-hmm. discomforts in talking to clinicians about race. And so there's, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's that parallel process. Layers and layers of support have to be yeah, built into this process to support people to be successful in talking about race, addressing their own bias, serving families appropriately. And I would say for me, um, some of the things that, that seems quite so simple that can be done, it's really just, I think for me, I, I always say this, being honest if this is if this is a challenge for you, if you find yourself um, being very honest with yourself about your inabilities or the challenges it presents for you to work with certain cultures or to work with women or to work with um, individuals that are transgender, um, then mm. choose not to do that work. Um, mm. Be honest. And I, I know this is where some employers have to be open to respecting that honesty and allowing individuals mm-hmm. to say, you know what, I'm, I don't know that I'm the best fit for this particular family or this particular culture. Um, mm-hmm. But being honest about that. I mean, obviously, there's other work that has to be done in terms of your if you're going to remain in the profession and how you um, address that. But if you're not, it will definitely have some impact on um, how you're servicing that family, the work that you're doing, um, you, you remove your ability to be effective. And so now you're working with a vulnerable family or individuals that have not received the help service or support that they, that they need. And I go back to, and they know it, they, they are able to sense, feel, and know when, um, it's not there. So really just being honest about that and respecting, how important you you talked about how they're saying it doesn't matter mm-hmm. well it, it, like she said it doesn't matter to who it, it does matter and so being um aware of that and knowing that acknowledging that of how important that is you can't say that race isn't important i mean you can't say that it, the sex isn't important you mm-hmm. can't say that if i have a disability then oh that's not important i just see you for who well that that's who that's a part of who i am it goes back to the social work value of, of what, what, how does who we are in, in this context, in the society, community, family we live in, how, how does that shape our lived experience and mm-hmm. how we look physically and our gender and, 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 and the range of our physical abilities and the amount of skin pigmentation, all of those things matter because we live in a society that has made it matter. Mm-hmm. So we can't ignore it and pretend that it doesn't. I appreciate, Cassandra, your comment so much about um, the honesty. And I, you know, doing DEI work on a macro level and just thinking about, you know, we're, we're moving towards shifts in paradigms, shifts in values, shifts in, especially as we have more diverse representation in the positions to make changes and to make and to set the values. And as that shifts... You know, being able to do the amount that our culture protects white fragility is astounding. And 
as we shift our values, understanding that your bias work is you doing your job. Your ability to mm -hmm. engage families mm -hmm. and to like assess what's happening, if you're struggling with that, is the job. And at some point, if you can't do the job, like there can't be a space for that. And we're not there yet. Like, and, and I'm not saying that people, mm -hmm. there, there's learning and growth and that is hugely a part of the work. But there also has to be a paradigm shift in, in what's the expectations and what's tolerated and, and at what, what at, one, at some point is not acceptable. We would never say like a doctor can just like not see black people. Like that'd be insane or like a dentist. Well, that's, that's, that's only been true for a few <laughs> that's years. True. So that's, yeah. I mean, well, you just, you can't say it, but that doesn't mean yeah. you can't do it. huh? Well, and 50 years ago, you could say it yeah. or 60 years ago when I'm, I'm dating myself, but yeah, you, you, that was the law. And, and it was perfectly acceptable. And maybe a better so. example is like you can't, you could never say that a dentist can't, I don't floss the teeth though. Like I'll polish them, but I won't floss them. No, it's all part of the cleaning. It's well, all a part of the job. Right. 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 Wow. That, that's, that's a great metaphor. <laughs> analogy. Like, yeah, or analogy. That's a great analogy that you're right. You can't, we can't uh, piecemeal Oh, I'm just going to clean them. We won't floss them. Right. Right. The interesting part about that analogy is that um, it all works together, though. So if you just do one part of that mm -hmm. and say, oh, I'm going to clean but not floss, then you're not being effective. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about this analogy, when you want to take bits and pieces of what you're going to do, it's all a part of the process. It's all a part of the plan. <laughs> so I'd like us, the three of us, to take a minute and think about it. You know, it's been quite a year. This is this is June. So, if, I mean, if I think back to where I was sort of emotionally and in my own head last June, it was not a happy place. Um, and, and particularly with regards to racial and social justice. And so, you know, what do the two of you think in terms of, you know, as this connects to child welfare, what are the biggest needs or issues right now? And, and do you have any hope? moving forward I mean you know what feels um like it should be at the forefront in, in terms of, of thinking about race and its implications for vulnerable children and families um for me I can start is I think that we we have to again I said this before I, we've been talking about disproportionality but we have to do something we have to be willing to really take a dive and look at why is it that um, if you're male, if you're African-American, if you live in a certain area, that you have a extremely higher um, probability of um, experiencing trauma, being in foster care or being removed from your home or whatever the, the, the statistic of this week is. And that's, that's not by happen chance. Mm -hmm. There are some things that um, are in place. Um, there are some biases that are there that um, have to do with our assessments, our um, the way we, we view individuals, what we're determining as abuse or neglect in one community or area that may not necessarily be viewed as abuse and neglect in the other area. So for me, that that's a, a very urgent a very urgent need. And, and we're not just talking, obviously, 
um, race. There are a certain class of people that will find themselves Mm -hmm. um, involved in this system more frequently. Um, And we just have to deal with that. We have to train our professionals better, but it's just not those that are on the front line doing the work in terms of the social workers, our court involvement. There are so many factors that um, sometimes even when you're trying to provide um, a, a chance because you're saying, you know what, this may just be a part of the cultural workup. Um, even our policy, some of our policy says that you're mandated to take certain action when A, B, C, or D is present. And I, I, I'm, I often question that sometimes I find myself asking, do we really believe in change? Do we really believe in rehabilitation? Do we really believe that, that those things can occur? And so for me, that's where I would say there's an urgent need to um, address some of those issues as it relates to um, child welfare, the work that we're doing, and, and and race and our race relations. It, it sounds like to some extent you're asking questions about in what ways might be we be reproducing mechanisms of oppression in child Absolutely. welfare or in this Absolutely. field, right? And mm-hmm. you know who develops the screenings to assess for risk and, and based mm-hmm. on what frame of reference or what template. Um, mm-hmm. Who, you know, in terms of, you mentioned court decisions, which I know, and I mean, this, there's been a lot of dialogue about this, not so much around the, the racial inequities, but, but around the fact that most judges don't know squat about child development or parent infant attachment or, you know, so, mm-hmm. and they're the ones, I mean, you know, everybody thinks the perception is sort of, oh, it's the child welfare worker who decides. No, it's a judge who, who, who often doesn't know anything about, you know, the, the things that they should be know about to make these life-altering decisions. Um, mm-hmm. So, so Andrea, what about you? What, what do you think? I'm going to say this, but I just want to, I don't, I don't want it to sound unhopeful because I do think that everything that Cassandra just talked about fits into this exactly. But a full deconstruction of the child welfare system is what has to happen. Like absolute dismantling mm-hmm. and rebuilding. And it sounds far-fetched. And I know people get a little worked up about ideas like that. It can happen and it already is happening in other sectors. Like there are people who are doing work to dismantle white supremacy. There's people doing work around racist policy, racist procedures. There are people who are already putting in research into like who is writing the assessments, who was the who was the study done on when we determined these measures. Mm-hmm. So it's already flowing right. in mm-hmm. place, but like That's really right. intentionally understanding that what we are doing is deconstructing white supremacy on purpose because it's problematic, because it's negatively impacting all of us. Intentional. And I think there's also a shift, there's a mentality shift that has to take place as well in that, I mean, many mentality shifts. Like we already talked about a lot of the value shifts that like need to fall in line in order to like have results. But also a shift around, there's an ill belief in our society that we include diversity because we want to help the brown people who haven't had a chance and that's like mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. most bottom line reason for inclusion and di- like including diversity. Diversity will positively impact everybody. Every layer of society benefits from improved new thinking, change, growth, and we will not have it if we have the same people making the same decisions. 
And so really shifting our understanding of the importance of that, like as a white professional, understanding that you benefit, you will be better at your Mm -hmm. job and you will be working in a better functioning system once we Mm -hmm. bring in diverse ideas. But you have to believe that. Right. That's the shift. And it's a, it's a huge it's a huge change and it and it deconstructs everything people thought they know about or knew about who they were and the power they have and and so it's it, it is it's a big shift. And I so I don't know if either of you are familiar with this term. I um so I I'm I'm in higher education and there's been a lot of talk about diversity, equity, inclusion. And there's a group with the New England um Association of the Higher Board of Ed, they're talking about re- reparative justice because the, the 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 idea is that diversity, equity, and inclusion, sort of like you said, Andrea, is that's that's one point of view about okay, well I guess we have to bring these people in now and include them. Which, and so 20 years ago, it was tolerance. Well, I guess we have to tolerate these people. <laughs> and that, you know, that just speaks volumes about the thinking behind that. Um, and so reparative justice is really more, the, the ideas are sort of restoration, um, nourishment and support. So it's like this acknowledgement of harm, this investment of resources, and in a way that encourages growth for everyone. You know, demographically, in less than 20 years, half of the U.S. population will be people of color. Um, And I guess, you know, I do some work in maternal infant mortality, um, racial disparities, and it's just, how can we even begin to talk about being competitive um, internationally or as a country? How can we be the greatest place Mm. in the world if almost like half of our population, the children and mothers are three to four times more likely to die then what you know, and that's just an example. Like how? So you're right. Back to your point of this is for everybody, because what what has gone on up to this point is not sustainable. It's mm. not sustainable, um, and it hasn't. It's done a lot of damage to everybody. Yeah, it's and it's it's not sustainable, and it's not that great. Like we know, we have oh, evidence yeah. that it's not. So all do we that. want to sustain it? No. <laughs> No, we well, don't. Yeah, that depends on yeah. who, you, who you are. It depends on who you are. But um, any, any final thoughts from either of you? This has been an incredible conversation. I'm thankful. I'm just going to say I'm just thankful to, you know, that there is space and opportunity to have um, these type of discussions. Um, and for University of Minnesota and others that are involved to just make sure that it is remaining um, in the forefront as a part of the discussion for improvement. So I'm just thankful for that. I I would agree. I I think this is amazing work that's being done by SEED. um, And I feel like it's a model for the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. Um, Andrea, are you going to say something? Yeah, I fully agree. Just having spaces like this, having content that is given to professionals that really is is just about this because you can't do the work without this like it, it is mm-hmm. so intertwined in, in a, it should be intertwined in every facet of our society and so maybe social work is paving some paths for that but um, it's so important well thanks many many thanks to the both of you 
So many thanks again to Andrea Pennick, who is the Endorsement Central Services Coordinator for the Alliance for the Advancement of Infant Mental Health. And many thanks to um, Cassandra Thomas, who is a medical social worker at St. Joe Mercy Oakland Hospital in Pontiac, Michigan. Thank you for listening to the Early Development and Child Welfare podcast series. This podcast was supported in part by the Minnesota Department of Human Service Children and Family Services Division.